Holy and gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to show us uh, what it means to be great. Uh, Jesus said that the greatest among you is the least, the one who uh, takes that back seat, who takes the position of service and kneels before others and gives their lives over uh, to the needs of the world around them. Father, we thank you that you have given us uh, a spirit, uh, the spirit of Jesus Christ within us, that we might have that mind in us, which was within him, that he emptied himself and came into this world, and he loved us and he served us even to the point of going to the cross for us. We thank you this day, Father, for all those who serve, for all those who seek to give their lives away rather than to hold on tight and to grab for everything they can for themselves. And I thank you for the servant ministries of this church and pray your blessings upon them. This day, Father, as we worship you, may our hearts be true, may they be filled with your love, And may we uh, look around us, Father, and have a love for the people in this sanctuary and for all those, Father, uh, beyond the sanctuary who are in need of our love. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who this, this day we follow as his disciples. And amen. Good morning. Could you please, could you please join me for the prayer of guidance? Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read today and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what what you say to us today. Amen. So I am going to use my phone since Bob is using his tablet. So So the scripture today is Mark 9, 33 through 37. It's in page 45 in the New Testament of the Pew Bible. And I am reading from the complete Jewish Bible version. They arrived at Capernaum when Yeshua was inside the house. When Yeshua was inside in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing as we were traveling? But they kept quiet because on the way they had been arguing with each other about who was the greatest. He sat down, summoned the twelve, and said to them, if anyone wants to be the first, he must, he must make himself the last of all and serve all. He took a child and stood him among them. Then he, he put his arm around him and said to them, Whoever welcomes one such as a child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Thank you. Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Amanda. It's a... Uh... A little bit strange being up here with this. I feel like that screen's sort of in the way, but uh, I hope you'll you'll bear with me as we go through this. I may I may not even refer to it that often, but I do have something I wanted to read read off of here. Um, we're going to be talking about greatness this morning and how Jesus describes uh, great. What does it mean to be great? Several times in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples come to him and and and, and uh, they have a question about their position. Uh, about what 's coming to them because they have given up everything to follow jesus and and uh, their their mindset is very much like anybody in this world it 's very human to think, do I get any glory? You know will people look at me and admire me? Will I be part of something great, and what does that mean for James and John, for instance, it was the question of where do we get to sit? 
You know, when you come into your kingdom, do we get to sit on your right and your left? You know, mom has been asking us, and it's true. Their mother was very much, she loved her sons, and she wanted to make sure that they got the seat of, of, of position and power. And so Jesus is very clear in that the kingdom of God is a very different uh, different uh, way of being great, that there is something that is so upside down. Sometimes we call it the upside down kingdom from what the world thinks is great and how we pursue greatness. And certainly great is a word that is used a lot in our culture and politics and everything. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, the uh, Make America Great Again uh, slogan uh, Bill Clinton in speeches used to say, let's make America great again. Ronald Reagan had that as, as a slogan back in 1980 because it's just, it just makes sense for a politician to appeal to people's the pride of the country and say, let's be great. Let's, let's do the things that need to be great. And so uh, it's not just a, a Trump thing or a Clinton thing or a Reagan thing. It's just a thing of that's a desire that every nation always has. And so we'll kind of contrast the way nations try to be great with what Jesus, Jesus says in all too. So uh, I hope we have a great sermon. And uh, I hope you're feeling great today. You know, and uh, I thought about all the ways we use the word great. It may be the most overused word in, in the English language. Most of us, if somebody says, how are you doing today? Uh, you say, great, I'm doing great. Uh, we, we, we tend to, to use it describe, to describe things that maybe aren't necessarily great, but we're being kind. You know, that was a great uh, recital. That was a, that was a great sermon, whatever, and, you know, it's, it's very, very uh, uh, much overused in that way. I was actually born in the greatest year in human history. And, and, and I'm not just joking here. If you go online and you search what was the greatest year in human history, it is amazing how many people choose that year, 1955. 1955, the American economy was revved up. We had uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, uh, you know, a war hero as president, and he, he was kind of an even-keeled guy. We were at, uh, between wars. Uh, Vietnam was actually sort of happening already. The French were involved in war down in Indochina, but most Americans, very few people could have told you where Vietnam was. We, we didn't really see the shadows on the horizon, and we were proud of what was past of the war, and there was a, a sense of, of uh, dignity about our country and that we were helping people and uh, sending money into uh, Germany and Japan to help rebuild our enemies. Wow, that, that says a lot about us. We felt that that, that said, you know, that we're the country that even when people come and attack us in the end of when everything is done we treat them like friends and so uh and there was that real undercurrent too of of christian faith that was still foundational uh in the nation and uh and a lot of people saw uh our nation as a reflection of 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 the gospel uh now at the same time in 1955 we also had segregation we had a lot of things that today we look back on and we're not real proud of. That's one of the things that make America great again. When were we fully great? We've always been the nation that strives to be great, but we know we're going to fall short. 
we, we strive to make a more perfect union. Not a perfect union, but more perfect. And we've always got something, be it, be it slavery or, uh, or discrimination. Uh, we, uh, uh, the internment of the Japanese uh, citizens of the United States during World War II who were interred in, uh, in camps. And, and uh, you know, we can go back and we see all those little black marks along the way and we realize we're great in comparison maybe to a lot of places, but maybe not so great in the end in some ways. So we're always striving, we're always trying to do better. Now the one thing that was great in 1955, I'll tell you a couple of things, this is the reasons why it was a great year. The first McDonald's, McDonald's franchise was sold. Okay, McDonald's started up. Disneyland opened in 1955. Uh, in Back to the Future, what year does Marty McFly go back to? 1955. That's right, because for the people writing the movie, that was just this, this special year in American history where it just, uh, nostalgically, it was just a wonderful place uh, to go back. It was the year that the uh, Disney, um, Davy Crockett, came out in movie form. The, it was, had been three episodes on The Wonderful World of Disney, and they put it together into a movie, and they put it out to the public, and it was a big hit. Now, I was just born that year, but I want to tell you, by the time I was three, four, five, six, I knew the words to Davy Crockett's ballad, you know? Uh, King of the Wild Frontier. I had the record. I had the little record, and we wore that out on our little toy record player all the time. And, and I actually had a kid in, in my class at, in my elementary school who wore the coonskin hat and everything. So we, uh, we were into Davy, Davy Crockett. Uh, also, Albert Einstein passed away in 1955, and they were looking for a child at Bethesda Naval Hospital to transplant his brain into. And I have to say, it, it wasn't me, uh, <laughs> or was it? I'll just leave you all asking that question, okay? One of the great things back then was the relationship of wives to their husbands. I actually um, came across this article. It was in Good Housekeeping magazine, and this is excerpted in a book that was called The Good Wives Guide. And uh, I actually have seen uh, a little movie that they made back for home ec classes back in the 50s into the 60s. They were showing this in home ec classes, and it, and it kind of dramatizes what I'm about to read to you. So if you are a good wife... Have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready on time for his return. By his return, we're not talking about Jesus here. This is a way of letting him know that you, you have been thinking about him and are concerned about his needs. Most men are hungry when they get home, and the prospect of a good meal is part of the warm welcome needed. Now, it gets much better. Prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup, put a ribbon in your hair, and be fresh-looking. He has just been with a lot of work-weary people. Be a little gay and a little more interesting for him. His boring day may need a lift, and one of your duties is to provide it. Now, i got to tell you, in 44 years of marriage, Lydia has not missed a day on doing what is here. This is the way. Clear away the clutter. Make one last trip through the main part of the house just before your husband arrives. Run a dust cloth over the tables. During the cooler months of the year, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind by. Your husband will feel he has reached a haven of rest and order, and it will give you a lift too. After all, catering to his comfort will provide you with immense personal satisfaction. Now, this goes on and on, but I'll, I'll just end up. Uh, minimize all noise. 
at the time of his arrival, eliminate all noise of the washer, dryer, or vacuum. Encourage the children to be quiet. Uh, Be happy to see him. Greet him with a warm smile. Show sincerity in your desire to please him. Listen to him. Don't greet him with complaints and problems. Don't complain if he's late for dinner, or even if he stays out all night. Count this. (laughs) Why is he staying out all night? I don't know. Count this as minor compared to what he might have gone through at work. Make him comfortable and so forth. And it goes on down. And the last thing it says, a good wife always knows her place. Can I get an amen from at least the, <laughs> the men look scared. They don't want to amen on this one, right? But, you know, it's interesting because I read that to you because times, I mean, I was, that was in my lifetime that they were teaching this to girls in home ec classes in high school. And, and this was not, you know, satire. This was serious stuff here. How much... Our culture has changed. And, and one of the things I, I wanted to emphasize this morning is that culture is built on sand. Human culture is built on sand. There is no one overarching uh, rule of life that guides human beings unless they seek to find that in a faith uh, as we have in God. Then we have a solid rock of foundation to build on. But everything else is just coming out of the human mind. And it's subject to the change over time. Things today that our culture teaches that we believe uh, back uh, 60-some years ago would have been anathema. Uh, growing up, uh, when <laughs> I just went to the camp, uh, Camp Overlook. And at Camp Overlook... When, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but when they have swimming time, the boys and the girls swim at the same time in bathing suits that are, are you know, uh, yeah, not, not much guidance here on all this stuff. When I was a kid at Camp Wamava up near Front Royal, they had uh, swimming time. The boys would have their swimming time because you, the boys go first, of course, because the girls have to think about the boys have a hard day. And... Uh, uh, and the girls were back, you know, preparing dinner for us and all. But uh, but we'd have our swimming time, and then it'd be over, and we would go back to our area on this side of the camp, and the girls would come from their area, but we were not to see them as they came to the swimming pool. That was the big thing. You don't you don't watch the girls. So we had. Now you say, well, wow, that well, of course that was a church camp. That was also uh, in some communities in the nation, especially down south. You didn't have quote mixed bathing. We think of that mixed race bathing, but even mixed gender bathing was not allowed. Now, if I tell somebody that today, you know, a teenager that today, they're going to look at me like I've got you know three eyes or something. Yeah, that just sounds so strange to think about times like that. We had a lot of customs that have gone gone by the way. And so cultures change and, and things change over time and evolve and we don't really even notice a lot of the changes as it, as it, as it goes along. Uh, when we um, uh, look at the U.S., our, our, our notion of what is great changes from time to time. Some, sometimes with, uh, in, in, in some eras, it's more focused upon the economic uh, uh, prosperity. Sometimes it's more focused upon the human rights. Uh, the, uh, sometimes it's more focused on on uh, going into uh, other countries and trying to help them along. That's why we have so many government agencies. And, pe- and, and a new president comes in and wants to cut all these agencies. Why do we even have these agencies? Well, because a previous generation wanted these things. And now we no uh, longer want it. 
And so we have sort of a chaotic government going on as it changes from administration to administration as different priorities are brought in. So we're not even sure what makes us great. Uh, You ask uh, just generation to generation, it's hard to figure out what makes us great. And so... um, as uh, as we go into uh, and let me get, let me see, I, I read a great article by the way. I won't share it all with you, but just to say that it went through all the different nations: Germany, uh, Russia, for instance. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, has a uh, a stance on greatness that he wants his country to be recognized as a global power, and mostly that is based upon military clout. Okay. Uh, you go to uh, North Korea, a different idea of what makes you great. You go to China. Uh, China has, shares some of our American values of what makes you great. Uh, they want prosperity. We want prosperity and all too. But we still want to be great while allowing human beings, individuals, to have individual rights. And China is moving in the opposite direction of that. So even within the world and within different cultures and nations, there are different ideas of what it means to be great. But then there is the standard of Jesus, and that's why I want to share with you now. Go ahead to the next uh, screen there. Uh, Now, this came out of my head. I started to write down, after thinking about this this week, I started to write down yesterday, what did the nations of this world uh, believe make a nation great? That the, that you would, and these aren't necessarily bad values, but security, prosperity, earthly power, dominance, control, and pride. These tend to be the things as we look through history at different empires, from the Romans to the United States today. These are shared values throughout history. Uh, we can go back to the Tower of Babel. We can go back to ancient Egypt. We can go back every nation. These seem to be the things that propel the nations toward greatness. We want to have a secure uh, nation. We want prosperity. We want power among the nations. We want dominance, in fact. We want control. Uh, we want to be proud. Those are all the things that the values that nations share. Now, you may be able to add some other things uh, to that list. But then I contrasted that when we go to the kingdom of God and what Jesus was describing in the Gospel of Mark uh, in several places, uh, in Mark 8 and Mark 10 and Mark 12, uh, Mark 14, uh, that vulnerability and sacrifice, uh, a recognition of the eternal power of God. Why are you so concerned about things here? You know, you should be fearing the one <laughs> who can throw you into hell. So why are you so concerned about, about pleasing the people of this, of this world? Why are you not more concerned with God? Eternal power, servants of all, faith instead of control. You see, an, an unfaithful person seeks to control every situation, and what they find out in the end is that they have no control over their situation. This is what Jesus said about the man who went and built all these barns so he could put all his grain and store things up and he got more grain and he needed more barns and he keeps building the barns and then one night he dies and, uh, and uh, he, he said, Jesus says, thou fool, you know, you, you, you thought that you could just keep building up your barns and you could keep uh, creating this secure place for yourself but in the end, death comes to us all. And you should have been focused on the things that really mattered and not on the things of this world. And so, uh, and humility, uh, that's, that's a tough thing for us. You know, at the same time as a nation, we want to be proud and we want to trumpet our accomplishments to the world. But, uh, but to have a humility about you, 
a true and authentic humbleness, Jesus said, to recognize your position in the world and to recognize how transitory everything is, that things come and go over time. And we can never assure that any nation will stand uh, for a hundred years, five hundred years, a thousand years, two thousand. How many, how many regimes, how many nations stand after that many years? They may still be there territorially, but certainly in many ways most of those nations have changed. So we see quite a, quite a contrast between the two, uh, the two things there. And then, and then as, as we wrap down, I'm going to leave a lot of my sermon about because I, I tell you it was, it was very interesting going through this and going through all the scriptures and seeing the roots of what Jesus said in the Old Testament, in Isaiah and Amos. What does the Lord require of you? Okay? To, to do justice. And, and to walk humbly with God and to love mercy and to, you know, these, these things are all back in the Old Testament. The, but the people of Israel were so consumed, their leaders were so consumed with, with these values of the world that they had forgotten to do these things. And they had forgotten what the Old Testament told them. Uh, Isaiah says that, you know, if you feed the hungry and, uh, you know, that your light is going to shine and, and, uh, and the sun will rise up on you, uh, you know, that, that uh, this is the way to have a brilliant and, and, and great life is to go out and to help those who are in need of help. And certainly Jesus talked about all these things. So then there were two scriptures that that struck me this week. Go to the next one. Now this one, the type's a little bit small, so I'll read this. But this is, this. if we were going to say what makes a person great, uh, we take the advice of Paul in Philippians 2 when he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride. Think about that for a moment. Think about everything you do in your life. How many things have you done just out of selfish ambition to accumulate something for yourself or to have people look at you and say, look at how great they are. But he says that in contrast to that, in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. How often do we do that? How often do I do that? See, I, I need these reminders of Scripture all the time to remind me that today there's something to do that has nothing to do with me and everything to do with somebody else who needs me this day, needs what I can offer them, that God has blessed me with something, that God has given me something, and this day I will consider themselves them, I will consider them more important than me. And he says... Uh, to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So if we're thinking, how did Jesus define greatness? Okay, Paul says there is a mind that can inhabit the space in you, your mind. That you can put this mind on in you. And you can live with this mind. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Not the mind of the world, not the mind of every advertisement you see on TV that tells you how to have a better life, and it's all fake. But let this mind be in you. That Jesus Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And this is what he tells his disciples in, in the Gospel of Mark and in the other Gospels. He says, you must become as a servant to all. You must take up a cross. You must follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To have his mind in us. To walk, to talk, to live as Jesus Christ lived. That's greatness. 
And then uh, he took the form of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this isn't like a short-term thing where we can uh, take on the mind of cross and uh, take on the mind of Christ and have it in us, and then and then just set it aside and take it off, and when it's convenient or inconvenient. But this is something that that we take on and we make a commitment to, and we walk with Christ, and we have that mind in us. Always love it when the uh, AV folks say, "Okay, on to the next point here." Okay, <laughs> which which very good faith. Thank you for that reminder. Yep, uh, Jesus, and, and then and then here we go. And this is the fundamental thing: of Old and New Testament. Uh, this goes back to Deuteronomy, and it comes up into the Gospels. When it, whenever Jesus is asked, "What is the most important thing in life? What is the thing that will make us great?" and Jesus will answer with the same same answer all the time. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Love God, love others. You see? And do, you do it with that spirit of Christ, that, that humility, that willingness to be the servant of others. The willingness, Jesus, a couple of times there in Mark, he takes children and he says, you have to welcome these children. The willingness to see the greatness in the least of these and to love them and to serve them. The last uh, scripture, I don't have it up here, but uh, I was thinking about this week was because there's a great danger in Christianity and certainly this has happened over the years where people take on the form without the spirit. We act like Jesus, but we don't love like Jesus. And so we say, well, we haven't helped any hungry people this week, so let's go out and find some hungry people. And Joe, you go down to the grocery store, and, and uh, Sue, you, you, you do some cooking over there, and we'll go help because we got to do it because it's a commandment, because Jesus says we have to do it. Your heart isn't in it. Love isn't in it. You're just doing it. And also it looks good to the neighbors, and it looks good to the other churches. And you say, well, we've got a feeding program. See, that's the thing about our food program and feeding is that there has to be love in that little house back there, right? And I know there's love. Everything that's given out has to be given out with love or it's nothing. How do I know that? Because Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13, the, quote, love chapter. You know, I don't care if you give out a 1,000 pounds of food a day. I don't care if you speak in the tongues of men and angels. I don't care if you prophesy. I don't care. All these things that you do, if you don't have love, it's nothing. It's a clanging symbol. It's nothing. And so, in the end, greatness, the root of greatness is in love. Loving God and loving neighbor. And then Jesus exemplifies that for us. He brings that out so we can see what that would look like. It looks like someone carrying a cross. It looks like someone loving the children and welcoming them. It looks like someone dying on a cross for others, being willing to give themselves for the sake of others. That's true greatness. It has nothing to do with titles and power and diplomas on the wall. It has nothing to do with your bank account. It has nothing to do with your your looks or anything else. Greatness is rooted in the love of God in Christ Jesus in you and in me. May we be a great people, a great church, and a people who know who we are in Christ Jesus. And amen. As you leave this place today, you don't need... 
uh, a time machine to go back to 1955 to find greatness. Find greatness in Jesus Christ all week in prayer, in reading of his word, in serving others in his precious name. Go in his peace and amen.